Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. It's the lack of strategic and political acumen within number 10 that led to this huge U-turn with regard to Owen Paterson. What I want to know is why have we not been recording Planet Normal from the British Virgin Islands and being paid £11,000 an hour? If we apply present moral uh, and political standards to the past, then there's hardly anyone who will meet our ethical criteria. Apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. As the COP26 chest-beating reaches a crescendo and the po-faced Glasgow summit comes to a close, as we consider from our beloved planet normal the madness of planet Earth, new vistas of woe come into view. Sleaze is unacceptable, it needs to be stopped, said former Prime Minister John Major, responding to the latest lobbying scandal to rock Parliament. Not bad from someone whose government collapsed amidst a frenzy of financial and sexual scandal. The Jabs for Jobs row has reignited, with Health Secretary Sajid Javid confirming in the Commons on Tuesday that care home workers need to be vaccinated against COVID-19 from today, Thursday. Yet NHS workers, an estimated 10% of whom remain unvaccinated, they have until next April to get jabbed against the same virus, despite similar proximity to vulnerable elderly patients. How does that work? Meanwhile, Alison, we learnt that the Oxford-educated NHS England chief executive can't read a spreadsheet. (laughs) Amanda Pritchard claimed the NHS is sustaining 14 times as many COVID admissions as this time last year. Uh, no. The latest published data, which your trusty co-pilots follow daily, clearly shows that the number of people in hospital with COVID is significantly lower than last year. Even La Pearson gets that, (laughs) and she failed O-level maths. This is someone, Alison, paid a quarter of a million quid a year of taxpayers' money to run the NHS. She has at her disposal a vast research secretariat. How did she get the numbers so wildly, shockingly wrong? An honest mistake or the latest chapter of Project Fear? You decide, dear listeners. But keep in mind that if Planet Normal made such utterly erroneous, flat-out, fictitious statements about such a sensitive subject at such a sensitive time... Alison and I and our Telegraph mothership, we would be slammed, rightly, by a slew of regulatory bodies. We'd probably be sacked. So why not, as you written co-pilot, the NHS chief executive too? What on earth was she thinking? Well, very good question, Halligan. But I think before we go into that, let us just pause for a moment to contemplate the magisterial spectacle of Sir John Major in his blue Y-fronts declaring the moral deficiencies of his successors. His trusty sword of truth poking through. (laughs) 
Oh, dear. I think it was Edwina Curry who had to deal with the trusty sword of truth, wasn't it, really? Not us. Anyway, yes, um, Amanda Pritchard. I mean, oh, my goodness. So here we have the head of NHS England succeeded Sir Simon Stevens back in August. She appears this week on Sky News urging people to book their booster jabs because the health service is running hot. Amanda Pritchard told Sky News we've had 14 times the number of people in hospital with COVID-19 that we saw this time last year. And of course, it was absolute rubbish. But nevertheless, it was happily broadcast first by Sky and later by ITV News. Now, Liam, you were mocking my lack of a maths O-level at the top of the podcast. But as you know, I am Planet Normal's hospital bed occupancy correspondent. You are Velma with the thick glasses and the roll neck. You are the brainy one. Probably no human has more in-depth knowledge of the country's bedpans than your co-pilot. So looking at what Pritchard claimed... If what she'd said was true, there would currently be 150,000 NHS beds occupied by people sick with COVID. But as Planet Normal listeners will know, NHS England only has around 100,000 beds. So that would be getting a bit squashed. I don't know, Liam, I got very angry about this, as you might have seen in my column this week, because what were the interpretations of this woman, this immensely senior woman who's giving information to the nation, which is paid for by the public. Either she was deliberately misrepresenting the data on live television to alarm the public and sustain the narrative of the NHS being overwhelmed, which of course suits her very well, doesn't it? Because let's keep all those awful ill people away from the hospital so we don't get overwhelmed. Or Amanda Pritchard has no clue what is going on in her own health service. All I can say, Halligan, is it's lucky she's not running an organisation with a budget of £150 a year, isn't it? So later, NHS England did clarify that Ms Pritchard had been talking about hospital admissions in August 2021, even though she described this as was making a comparison. I mean, what can you say, Liam? I mean, the hospital admissions on the dashboard, I... Via George, our wonderful Planet Normal informant, can get the updated figures, can't we, every single afternoon. But we have the head of the NHS England claiming that the August data, which makes the situation look as bad as possible, they always cherry pick the worst possible comparisons with the previous year, that that's the most recent set of figures. Come off it, Amanda. No, it damn well isn't. You know what? You don't even need the insights and the access that George, our NHS England source, gives us. We never disclose his or her identity. And I know you've got an update from George later on this podcast. You can just eyeball the ONS dashboard. You and I look at that every single day. And yet you and I know as soon as we heard her say that, having looked at the data, the publicly available data on the excellent ONS dashboard every single day, we instinctively knew that's nonsense. It sounded completely wrong to our ear. It instantly jarred. Why? Because we're paying attention. Yes. I simply cannot believe that she didn't know she was talking rubbish. Either she knew, and so she was deliberately misleading people, or she didn't know, and if she didn't know, that's completely outrageous. No, that's right. And the other thing is that we can only surmise, I guess, that she's been told by the health department to go out there, you know, and frighten a few more people to get them to 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 take the booster. 
But what doesn't make sense to me, Liam, is that saying that the hospitals are actually rammed with COVID patients, how is that going to do anything but undermine confidence in the vaccination? Aren't people going to be thinking, hang on a minute, everyone's doing as they're told and getting their vaccinations and getting their boosters. But now this woman, the head of the NHS, is on the telly telling us the hospitals are overwhelmed, that 14 times as many people are in hospital as a time when there hardly were any vaccinations. I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. Let's hear from George. But my final comment on what Amanda Pritchard has said is this. She's presenting data from four months ago as the latest data. And of course, August 2021 was very different from August 2020 because in August 2021, we were testing many, 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 many times more people than we were in 2020. So whichever way you look at this, you know, I take statistics really seriously. And I know you do too, joking aside about your maso level. In the 75 episodes we've had of Planet Normal, and it is our three-quarter century ooh, today, Copilot. Oh, right. Ooh, let's just throw that in there, along with the fact that you recently won the Edgar Wallace <laughs> and Gromit Award, because <laughs> you weren't going to mention it. In the 75 episodes of Planet Normal, you have absolutely transformed your personal ability. I say this is your friend, but also your co-pilot, to look at, search out, seek out, and analyse data. I think it's completely revolutionised your approach to journalism. It's given you a whole extra string to your already very distinguished bow, if I may say so. And you know instinctively when you heard what she said that it was wrong. As you know full well, you know, hospital bed occupancy correspondent would not be my first choice or indeed my 53rd choice. But we've been doing it, Liam, because we just see this blizzard of misinformation, don't we? I mean, somebody commented when they saw the Amanda Pritchard claim that out by a Ferguson or out by several Fergusons. (laughs) Units of error. (laughs) Units of error. What was it Neil Ferguson said the last time he got some absolutely catastrophically wrong? He said, oh, he'd prefer to be wrong in the right direction. I mean, they are absolutely shameless, these people. So I think listeners know that the only reason that someone like me who just barely comprehends any of this stuff. The reason I've forced myself to master it is because I want us to understand what's going on, not what we're being told, because I think a lot of what we're being told is not what's going on. But anyway, we're going to hear from someone who really knows what's going on, and that's George, our fantastic insider. Do you want to just say quickly a bit about George? So George is a senior source within NHS England, He or she has full access to the internal data. We don't disclose his or her identity, but we're confident of the authenticity of George's statistics. That's why we report them. But by definition, we can't independently verify them because they are often not published. Indeed not. So George said, if what Amanda Pritchard said was true, the NHS would have collapsed. Apparently, George says, she, Amanda Pritchard, lifted the whole quote from Steve Powis, our medical director. I suspect someone in the office just waved it under her nose and she read it out. George gives us the latest picture, Liam. Currently just over 7,000 COVID patients in hospital. On the same day last year, there were 10,500 patients. So there are actually fewer patients now, not more. And George also says that the numbers 
are now plummeting. And we know, Halligan, as well, that cases we've been testing and testing and testing. But despite all the testing, the cases are going, really going down. I think it's about 20% in the last 10 days. But George says today, if you factor in the number of daily COVID discharges, we are seeing net decreases. The number of COVID patients in hospital are starting to fall, not going up. Amanda Pritchard has access to exactly the same data I do, says George. But telling people hospital admissions are now a lot lower isn't going to scare anyone into getting a booster jab. And just finally, the number of patients being admitted to hospital, George says, it was 688 on Monday. And of that 688, 280 were admissions. Now, Planet Normal listeners, Liam, know that means 280 people with actual COVID symptoms going to hospital. The rest of the 688 patients were diagnoses. That means 408 patients were admitted with other ailments who then tested positive after going into hospital. A rather crucial distinction, because if you say 688, it sounds a lot more frightening. So again, we see another example of the NHS using stats to its own advantage, not, I would argue, for the benefit of its patients. Just quickly, Lim, you'll have seen that The Telegraph had an exclusive story this week of 11,600 poor souls who caught COVID in hospital and died after being admitted for other ailments. And I would suggest that you can see why the head of NHS England might want to keep the focus on a waning pandemic by talking up the numbers, because there are all these dirty little secrets, including the fact that the NHS has absolutely dreadful infection control. And as veteran doctors writing to Planet Normal have told us in previous epidemics in this country, they had fever hospitals for the infectious patients, and it was business as usual for the rest of the service. It certainly was business as usual, Alison, and we are righteously upset by this statement by the chief exec of NHS England. I'm sorry to harp on about it. We just find it very, very difficult to accept that this was an honest mistake because it was so far out. And even the most casual, semi-professional observer of the numbers just knows that what she was saying was nonsense, given that it was presented as the very latest data. We should also discuss another big development in the NHS and also in social care. That is when Sajid Javid stood up in the Commons this week and he confirmed that people working in social care homes would have to be vaccinated by today, by the day we're broadcasting this episode of Planet Normal, by Thursday. And there's lots of concern that that will lead to a shortage of staff in care homes, a sector which is already understaffed, as we've often said on Planet Normal. And it strikes me that to only confirm that on Tuesday and then require everybody to be jabbed in care homes by Thursday is too short a time. But then to say that people in the NHS, one in 10 of whom aren't vaccinated, if they're patient facing, they need to have the jab, but they don't have to be jabbed until next April. And we're talking about the same virus that they're being vaccinated against and patient facing NHS people and social care workers are similarly exposed to elderly patients who are vulnerable to COVID. It strikes me that that's a completely incoherent position 
for the government to adopt. Do you think so, co-pilot? How could the government be adopting an incoherent position? Who has ever heard of such a thing? <laughs> Why aren't we in charge? <laughs> yes, they keep saying that, but, you know, I can barely get out of my own house, never mind run the country. But this is a topic on which you and I normally were like the new seekers, aren't we? Singing in perfect harmony. Apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. I always liked Lynn. Do you know the one at the front with the lovely blonde hair? She was yeah. really nice. But anyway, so we, we, when we had this debate before about compulsory or mandatory vaccination for care home workers, you were very kind of stern about the fact that obviously they should get the jab or just get another job, as you put it. Now, I'm just going to put a couple of things to you. First of all, as the Prime Minister has recently admitted, being double vaccinated doesn't prevent you becoming infected and it doesn't prevent you transmitting the virus. So you could have a double jabbed care worker in a care home who had COVID and took it in to the old people anyway. Now, this is something I feel really strongly about, not just that 40,000 staff could be lost to the care sector from tomorrow because they've refused to be vaccinated. And immorally, I don't think they have any reason why they should be told what to put into their bodies. I also think that what's going to happen is we've already got what they call bed blockers, rather an ugly term, but lots of older people in hospitals sitting there. And if the care homes don't have as many staff, then that situation is going to be worse. And Amanda Pritchard will be on the telly telling everybody that the NHS is overwhelmed because they can't shunt out the old people. But what I really mind about, Liam, is why does the government and the health service, why doesn't Sajid Javid actually admit that there is this thing called natural immunity? From everything we've heard from doctors, nurses, health workers, care home assistants, many of them, probably most of them, in the last 18, 19 months, have been exposed to COVID. They've probably had COVID. It'll be a tiny minority, I'm guessing, who have managed to get through all this frontline work without getting COVID. And they will now, in which case, they will enjoy really good natural immunity. So what they could do is they could say to these people who are refusing to get jabbed, come in, have an antibody test, we'll give you a T-cell test, We'll check if you've had COVID. That is what happens when someone's going to get a TB jab. They give them a scratch test and they check. Have you had TB? Oh, yes, you have, in which case you don't have to have the vax. Now, there seems to be this fundamental aversion to allowing you know, or admitting that there is a, this amazingly powerful thing that nature does by herself called immunity. And I'm afraid, Halligan, you know, your co-pilot gets very cynical in her old age, but I cannot help thinking you don't make any money out of natural immunity, do you? It is a finely balanced argument. And I, and I grant you, obviously, natural immunity is far better. But I think back to our dear friend, Robert Styler, whose wonderful wife, yes. Josephine, unfortunately died in a care home. I mean, that was in the early days of Planet Normal. It seems like so long ago when yeah. we look back over 75 episodes. But I so remember the anguish and outrage really in Robert's voice that he wasn't allowed to visit his dear Josephine. And yet care home workers who were completely unvaccinated and were moving between care homes as vectors of infection, yes. were able to see his beloved wife and handle his beloved wife and do the little things for his beloved wife that he so 
beautifully described he would love to do, like brush her hair and make sure she was well presented. And it's that memory of Robert which really leaves me in rare disagreement with you on this. And unlike so many other people in the media, we like to disagree with grace and and respect. I think on balance, and it is on balance, if you are working in social care, you should have a jab, even if you are building up natural immunity anyway, if only to reassure the people you're working with. And if you can't get a jab for whatever reason, then there are all kinds of roles in social care that aren't patient-facing, and so then arrangements can be made. But I almost think the way the government's announced this, it's been set up to fail. They only confirmed on Tuesday that Thursday was the day. So obviously there are going to be care home workers who haven't been jabbed, who will will then find themselves excluded Mm. because they haven't haven't got time to get the jab. They're at work yesterday and today. So I think that was badly done. And then the distinction between NHS staff and care home staff, a sort of six-month gap between the requirement that they need to be vaccinated is completely nonsensical. It's as if the requirement to be jabbed if you are patient-facing and dealing with elderly patients is driven by the fact that the NHS doesn't want to rock the boat before the winter surge and the government doesn't want to mess with, you know, a much more unionised bunch of NHS workers as opposed to less unionised social care workers. Well, I think we know, don't we, Liam, that various unions have had an awful lot of sway in this pandemic. My own view is that Sajid Javid, is it's a double bluff. He says that NHS workers will have to be vaccinated by next April. But according to Professor Dame Sarah Gilbert, who, as you know, was one of the co-creators of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which which is the one I had, she says that COVID will quite rapidly become like the common cold. So I think we will see a U-turn before then, because by the spring, Liam, they'll have gone through the winter respiratory virus season If they were seriously going to make all NHS staff have the vaccine, they should be doing it now. I mean, as you say, it just doesn't make any sense to say, oh, in spring. So I think it's a bit more like coercion, really, putting on the pressure. But let's come back to John Major and his sword of righteousness. I mean, it's been a big week for sleaze. What I want to know is why have we not been recording Planet Normal from the British Virgin Islands of being paid eleven thousand pounds an hour. Because that would be a pay cut. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So, so well, you know how many jobs we do? We do about fifteen apiece, don't we? But we somehow we're still not staggering up to the sums earned by Sir Geoffrey Cox, the MP for Torridge and West Devon. And it's a complicated story, really. Last week. There was a human tragic element, I thought, I don't know what you thought, Liam, to the case of Owen Patterson, MP for Shropshire, was being suspended by the Parliamentary Standards Commission for lobbying is the most basic term. A number of very, very significant Tory backbenchers and ministers weighed in because, as you know, Liam, Owen Patterson, when he was under investigation, it caused immense pressure in his family and to his lovely wife, Rose, who very tragically took her life. And my interpretation of what happened was that a lot of Owen Patterson's friends, who's clearly in many ways a very, very lovely man, rallied around and couldn't bear to see him lose anything else, given that life had just dealt him this phenomenal 
blow of the suicide of his partner. So they did this, I think, deeply unwise thing. They basically tried to change the rules, the parliamentary standards rules, to protect their mate. And that has backfired big time, hasn't it? It certainly has. Uh, like you, Alison, I, I've got to know Owen Patterson over the years in my role as a, as a journalist, as as you have. You know, he's not everybody's cup of tea, but he is an archetypal Shire Tory MP, if you like, and very popular among many of his constituents by all accounts. And he was a pretty decent Northern Ireland secretary, by the way, conducted himself in that role with a lot of sensitivity to all the communities on the island of Ireland. And I know that for a fact. I think what happened here is there was a little bit of hubris. He should have just taken his punishment of a month's suspension and then it would have blown over and he'd come back and be a Tory MP for Shropshire North for many more years and he could have rebuilt his life, albeit having endured the shocking blow of his wife, Rose Patterson, who, as you know, the, the person who organises the Grand National every year, is a very significant figure in public life in her own right, or or she was. And emphasising the was, I do think you're right, a kind of Tory circling of the wagons happened, and it just wasn't the right thing to do. I accept Owen Patterson's concern that the process uh, by which he was judged was you know, a little bit one-sided. I, I accept that a lot of the witnesses who were vouching for him weren't given a chance to really state their case. But in the grand scheme of things, the rules are the rules and you can't change the rules in the middle of a dispute. And I think that's what jarred badly with a lot of the public and caused eventually, well, pretty quickly, the government to U-turn. But it's very sad. And I think we should wish Owen Patterson well. He's clearly got a lot of reflecting to do and a very difficult few months ahead of him as he tries to rebuild his life and that of his children after a really, really bruising episode. I suppose that you know what side I'm coming from, but I, I did compare it with another MP this week. This woman, Claudia Webb, Labour MP, Labour suspended her from the party, but she's still an MP. And she was given a 10-week custodial sentence, Liam, suspended for two years. And she was, they found her guilty of a campaign of harassment against a love rival. She threatened to throw acid in her face and to share naked pictures of her. So that's at the other end of the parliamentary spectrum. And I think some of Labour's crowing, there was a really horrible moment in Parliament when someone was talking about Rose Patterson's suicide and some of the real rat bags on the Labour benches went, ah, you know, in a horrible, sarcastic way. It's really divided the Tory party, I think. I think that the red wall seats, the new MPs who were elected in 2019, I think they were immensely resentful about being whipped to go and uh, vote for this change in the rules, which would have got Owen Patterson off the hook. So I think that's caused immense amount of anger and resentment amongst, you know, not the old guard of the Tory party, but the new kids on the block. And the other thing, Liam, I noticed today is that there have been four opinion polls since that Owen Patterson U-turn story, and three of the polls show that the support for the Conservatives is down by three points, and the final poll showed support down by two points. So it looks like a pretty bad crisis, doesn't it? 
It certainly could be seen as a bit of a turning point when we look back, as you say, it was a lot of the new intake from the Red Walls who pushed back among those Tory MPs. But what it points to for me is just a lack of grip in Downing Street. You know, whatever you think of him, we've both had our issues with him. This wouldn't have happened under New Labour when Alastair Campbell was in charge. It wouldn't have happened under Margaret Thatcher when Bernard Ingham was in charge. And you need somebody at the centre of government who just gets it and can see round corners and can spot political pitfalls before the cabinet, which often exists in a bubble, drives right into them. And I think that's what's alarmed people across the Tory backbenches, whether they're red wall or whether they're Tory shires. It's the lack of strategic and political acumen within number 10 that led to this huge U-turn with regard to Owen Paterson. It begins with a miracle treatment. These treatments were seen as a wonder drug to benefit all of us. Young lives injected with hope. This is going to transform your life. But the treatment's tainted. It contains a fatal poison. I came down with an illness where I basically passed out at work. And it starts to infect the very people it's meant to help. And then the damage began. Damage so far-reaching, it becomes one of the biggest medical disasters in history. Certainly hard to believe they sold all this product knowing it was infected. Join me as I trace it from the veins of innocent people back to a notorious American prison in The Telegraph's latest podcast. It's Bed of Lies Series 2 with me, Cara McGugan. A true story of greed, betrayal and deception. And it ends with a death sentence. In essence, they put money over life. Search Bed of Lies wherever you're listening to this. got in the rocket this week, Halligan? Well, last week, Alison, you wrote a column about the alumni of various Oxford and Cambridge colleges choosing, in exasperation, to exclude their alma maters from their wills. While today's students seem keen on tearing down statues and deplatforming certain speakers from visiting the universities, be they Oxford, Cambridge or many other British universities, it seems that yesterday's students aren't so amused. Alison, your article resulted in an approving letter to The Telegraph from Professor Lawrence Goldman, a most distinguished former Oxford history don, and he expressed his outrage that certain Oxford colleges had taken money from the estate of the late Max Mosley, whose father, of course, was Oswald Mosley, founder of the British Union of Fascists. I started by asking Professor Goldman what he meant when he said that Oxford University has lost its moral compass. Well, I mean that it doesn't seem any longer to be able to set its professed principles in place and live by them itself. Uh, British universities have become uh, rather adept at presenting their principles to the public, Oxford included. And in this case, it does rather seem, and there are other cases as well, but in this case, it does rather seem in regard to taking money from the Mosley family that they have 
lost the plot. They've lost, as it were, their hold on what is acceptable corporate behaviour by a leading national institution. What in particular is troublesome? Just spell it out for people who don't know the history about money that derives from the estate of the late Sir Oswald Mosley. Yeah, okay. In the 1930s, uh, Sir Oswald Mosley, after joining and leaving both main political parties, set up the British Union of Fascists and adulated Hitler and wanted to be the British Fuhrer and tried to get a mass movement going in this country, like mass fascist movements on the continent. I'm glad to say that the good sense of the British people prevailed uh, and the government of Stanley Baldwin also, and Mosley's movement never gained public support and the government closed it down very effectively indeed, quite unlike the way uh, fascism worked elsewhere. But uh, remarkably, amazingly, uh, 15 years after the end of the Second World War, Oswald Mosley tried again, trying to uh, resurrect his movement, standing in parliamentary by-elections. And at his side was his son, Max Mosley, who died in May of this year. Now, people think of Max Mosley as a colourful character in our life who was the head of Formula One. But for three years, at the end of the 1950s and the beginning of the 1960s, he was lieutenant to his father, organising gangs in Notting Hill that uh, roamed around trying to beat up new immigrants from the West Indies, the Windrush generation, and also going into the east end of London, into Dalston, where Jews lived, and promoting violent anti-Semitism. All this has been captured on newsreel footage and indeed in press reports of the time it's easy to find. Unfortunately, it was forgotten, although resurrected in 2018 in in several national newspapers. And at that point, a developing relationship with the University of Oxford on the part of the Mosley Family Trust, which Max Mosley chaired, should have been ended. There were very good pieces in the British press about his far-right past and his nefarious and violent activities. And since he had never apologised, he'd written an autobiography and published it in 2015 and never apologised, it was time, as it were, for the university to pull the plug and recognise that it shouldn't take any money from Max Mosley. But I'm afraid it continued to do so, and there were major benefactions to one of the colleges and the university. Now, Stephen Pollard, a a former Planet Normal stowaway like yourself, editor of the Jewish Chronicle, of course, has written a very powerful article taking exactly the same line as you on this Mosley money. But it's not just Oxford, is it, who have taken this money? It's the London School of Economics. It's uh, UCL, Imperial College. You know, some of our most stellar institutes of education. So, it strikes me that there's a really broad issue here that goes beyond individual Oxford colleges. Yes, I think you're right. I'm sure in Oxford's case, there's been just a a total failure of ethical and factual scrutiny of Mosley, Max Mosley, his family background and the money. But you rightly say that there is a systemic problem across the whole of the uh, system of leading universities in this country. It looks to me as if money is talking too loud, that universities in this country have set themselves with such enthusiasm to collect money that they have thrown out of the window 
academic principles, and if I may say so, pure common sense. They seem to show a lack of British history, a lack of uh, responsibility to the British public, because the British public have shown again and again their contempt for the Mosleys. And more generally, they seem to have lost, as it were, contact with the principles, the social and political principles, which they profess uh, so often in public now. Uh, So there is a systemic problem in university leadership and certainly university development offices which set out to collect money. Professor Goldman, a number of leading British historians like yourself, I'm thinking of uh, Robert Toombs, of course, the Cambridge uh, historian. They've set up Reclaiming History. They say that some of the students' views of historical figures associated with Oxbridge Colleges, they say they're unjustifiably critical. For instance, Oriel College has come under a lot of pressure to take down a statue of, of Cecil Rhodes, a figure associated with uh, apartheid and British colonialism in Africa, not least Rhodesia, of course. What's the difference in your view between a campaign to take down a, a statue of Cecil Rhodes on the one hand and taking money from Max Mosley and Oswald Mosley's estate. If you agree that Oxford shouldn't take Mosley money, shouldn't they also get rid of the statue of Cecil Rhodes? It's it's a very good point, but I think there is a straightforward answer. History reclaimed is concerned to ensure that historical figures are not judged by present standards. Because if we apply present moral uh, and political standards to the past, then there's hardly anyone who will meet our ethical criteria. Cecil Rhodes is undoubtedly a controversial character. He was in his own time. But many of these historical figures who are being attacked were acting in good faith and in conformity with the norms and the standards of their age. They may have been doing things that we now see to have been uh, wrong ethically and to have had very poor consequences, but at the time what they were doing was sanctioned, it wasn't illegal, it wasn't criminal. The difference with the Mosleys is that in the 1930s and then again in the early 1960s, the vast majority of British opinion was against fascism practised by the family. And the government also was against it. And the Baldwin government, for example, passed a series of laws to ensure that mass uh, fascist movements like the Mosleyite one uh, would be suppressed. There never was support, sanctioned support for Mosley, either uh, under Oswald in the 30s or Max subsequently. We have always opposed fascism in this country. We've always thought it was ethically unacceptable. So there is a difference because, as it were, we've always felt one thing about fascism, but in the past, many of these figures who are now under attack were not, as it were, criticised and were not outside established norms. So you're making the distinction that what Cecil Rhodes did was in keeping with the laws and social mores of his time, but by the 30s and then the 60s, what the Mosleyites were doing, even by contemporary opinion then, was already monstrous. 
Well, as it happens, there was an anti-colonial movement by the end of the Victorian period and the early 20th century, which was opposed to aspects of the British Empire. But at the time that Cecil Rhodes made his great benefaction to Oriel College and made his benefaction to the University of Oxford to set up the Rhodes Scholarships, these were not, as it were, controversial acts by somebody who was held to be inimical to public morality. And I think the general approach that I would take to Rhodes and his statue is that we have here a, a historical figure who, who mustn't be cancelled because he, is, he leads us into all sorts of questions about colonialism, which must be debated by historians, analysed and researched. One of the problems with a cancel culture is that if you cancel these figures, then in a sense, it no longer becomes possible for history to debate and discuss their actions. But where Mosley is concerned, and I, I think we're into a different realm. Uh, Cecil Rhodes was controversial, but not illegal, whereas the Mosley movement certainly was illegal in the 1930s, following uh, legislation in Parliament in 36. Professor Goldman, I noticed that you did your undergrad at Cambridge at Jesus College. Now, two previous Planet Normal stowaways, former Telegraph editor Charles Moore, former head of MI6, Sir Richard Dearlove, have both commented on how Cambridge University and Jesus College in particular with its China Centre have taken money from Beijing. We've had this instance with Mosley money going to Oxford. A lot of people are raising eyebrows about money that British universities, not least Cambridge, are taking from China. Don't we really need to rethink how higher education is funded in this country? I completely agree. It is my college. Uh, and indeed, I'm, you could say, in dispute with my undergraduate college as well. It sounds as if I'm a, a serial offender here. But rather longer before uh, I took up the issue of Max Mosley, I was writing letters about uh, Jesus College's attempt to remove from its chapel a monument to a 17th century figure. Uh, we won't go into detail about that, but one needs to be aware of the position of Jesus College, removing, I would say, virtue signalling in the process, removing uh, monuments to people of no great historical significance from its chapel, whilst at the same time, as you rightly say, taking a lot of money from China and compromising uh, the college and its integrity and independence in the process. I think there is a problem, genuinely so. For too long, universities have been, as it were, fundraising without proper control and thought and scrutiny over where the donations come from. It is a difficult business. Uh, I think, you know, uh, it can't be thought easy to judge whether a, ben a benefaction is or is not moral uh, and straightforward or is dodgy and questionable. But there have been failures across the board. And I think it was probably difficult for Jesus. It was probably an arrangement made some years ago when we hoped for better relations relationships with China, which now look much less promising for obvious reasons. But I think those, as it were, in leadership positions should be much more swift-footed, much more aware. That's what, as it were, they're paid to do. They must be aware of changing fortunes, changing political tides, and they must res respond better. And in the case of Jesus College, I don't think it has been able to respond as it should have done in regard to its relationship with the Chinese Communist Party. Even if Jesus don't withdraw, uh, remove that 
statue. I think you're referring to the Tobias uh, Rustat statue, the 17th century benefactor. Even if they don't remove that, they do really have a problem, don't they? As the Western world delves deeper and deeper into the origins of the COVID pandemic, as relations with China uh, seem to continue along a path of more mutual suspicion and belligerence. Do you agree with Sir Richard Dearlove, Professor Goldman, that China is just too influential in our top universities now? Do you worry about Chinese espionage, particularly in our scientific departments? I don't know enough about it. I'd have to be honest with you. Uh, You see far fewer Chinese students in the kinds of subjects that I teach, history and the humanities, uh, than you do in technical and scientific subjects. So it wouldn't be easy for me to comment. But I think I could make a more general comment, which is that the Jesus College relationship with China is part of a general problem. When universities and colleges take money, they should make it absolutely clear and plain to the donor that they retain the right of intellectual independence. They will go, as it were, wherever the thought, the subject, the question leads them, irrespective of the source of the money. And the donor must be prepared to give the money knowing that. There must be an awareness on the part of the donor that they give the money, but they can't thereafter control the agenda of the institute or the procedure or running order of a conference. That is down to academics and must follow an independent procedure based upon academic values, which have nothing to do with the money and its source. And this would go for China, as it would go for Russia, as it would go for any particular industrial or commercial interest that gives money to an institute of higher education. There has to be an awareness and an acceptance of absolute academic freedom. And clearly, in the case of Jesus in Cambridge, uh, there isn't when it comes to China. You are part of the History Reclaimed group, Professor Goldman, along with Professor Robert Toombs, as I've said, Professor David Abalafia, some of our most distinguished historians. It seems to me that, with all respect, I use this phrase with reverence, the sort of old guard of our academics, our our top social scientists, our top humanities experts, of whom you are part. You're really starting to fight back against this kind of wave of wokeness that our top universities seem to be riding. How exasperated are you and the other members of History Reclaimed? Because you are almost all of you, you know, mild-mannered, extremely polite, exact, respectable academics. You're not in the business of tub-thumping and rabble-rousing. So underneath the, the controlled exterior, how much anger is there among our top historians in particular, Professor Goldman, against what some of our leading universities have been saying and doing in response to the so-called woke epidemic? Mm. I think, Liam, you, you, you capture it in that word, exact. We are all of a generation who were taught history should be based upon sources, should be based upon evidence, and in a sense should be practised and written and taught independent of our own opinions and views. Always, uh, when I've given a public lecture, I think the greatest praise I've received is on those occasions when people have come up to me and said, we very much enjoyed that, but we don't know what you think. And that was great because in a sense, I'd succeeded. I hadn't told them my opinion. I tried to set out the facts and the uh, different interpretations as best as I could. 
And I think we're a generation who believe very strongly because of our education in contextualization. We want to understand the past in its own terms, not in our terms. It's very easy, as I've said already, to judge the past in our own terms. You don't need uh, much of an education and scholarly immersion to do that. But what we were taught to do, and what we still try to do, is to explain the differentness of the past, the strangeness of the past, why people thought as they did in the 16th and 17th centuries. And it's that aspect of historical studies, which I think most upsets me and I think other members of the group as well, that history is being turned into really a branch of contemporary politics and people can address it through their own particular ideologies and isms and background and context rather than trying to understand why people put up statues in the 17th century to the figures that they did and why these figures have to be understood in their own terms. History is a branch of contemporary politics. It's not just students wading in though, is it, Professor Goldman? It's, you know, members of the faculty at our leading universities. What would you say to faculty members who support students when they try to, if you like, weaponize history? Well, I think there's a danger in what they're doing to the discipline itself. If, as it were, it's just a question of different ideologies and different opinions, then the discipline of history itself will become really a subject up for grabs, not a subject based upon rigorous interrogation of sources, strong arguments, and a balancing of judgment over the facts. And if we lose that, then in a way we lose history because almost anything that anyone says, uh, however high and mighty, will have to be respected or will pass for history. And we will lose a grip, as it were, on the fundamental narrative and indeed on the best ways of understanding the past in its own terms. I fear that history will go the way of some social sciences which are largely disregarded by the public because they seem to be just simply an exercise in people emoting about their their latest ideas and their general contemporary political consciousness, uh, rather than having at their core uh, a body of sources, a body of key ideas, and a body of evidence that can justify positions taken. Professor Lawrence Goldman, thank you so much for stowing away with us on Planet Normal. I I read your Life of R.H. Tawney several years ago. can thoroughly recommend it. I'm looking forward to your new book, Victorians and Numbers, which comes out next year under the Oxford University Press imprint. We're so grateful to you for joining us in the Rocket of Right Thinking. Thank you, Liam. Thank you very much indeed. What a lovely interview, co-pilot. I mean, it's like having amidst all the sort of heat and clamour Listening to Professor Goldman, it's like having a long, cool drink of water, isn't it? Just such an intelligent and thoughtful man. And as with all the best explainers, I could feel my own thoughts about these subjects kind of becoming much, much clearer. He made that very good distinction, didn't he, which I wasn't aware of, which is that Max Mosley, who has given these millions, whose bequest has given these millions to Oxford, was promoting violent anti-Semitism in the late 50s and early 60s. And he never apologised for that, you know, appalling behaviour. And also drawing the distinction that Cecil Rhodes, the bust of Cecil Rhodes at Oriel College, Oxford, has been hugely controversial. 
But Professor Goldman making the point that although Cecil Rhodes was quite a controversial figure in his day, he wasn't an illegal figure and that many of these figures from the past that the wokists are coming for now were acting with good intentions according to the mores and customs and beliefs of their time. So they are indeed being put into the dock and judged, as Lawrence Goldman said, according to the standards of our time. I thought he was terrific. Yeah, you're in the hands of a professional when you talk to somebody like that, but he wears his huge learning lightly. I really enjoyed talking to him. And I had to put the question to him, if you're going to chide Oxford for taking money from Max Mosley, why don't you chide them for taking money from Cecil Rhodes? And he just answered it incredibly well with reference to fact. And I didn't know the answer to the question. And he answered it in a very sure-footed way. What Mosley was doing, even in the 30s, wasn't just socially suspect. It was illegal. I do think you have the very precise, exact, even-tempered old guard of British intellectuals, not least our historians, pushing back now against undergraduate madness in many senses, a madness that is backed up by you know, members of the faculty posing and hanging out with the kids and using the fact that they have exalted positions funded by taxpayers in many cases at some of the world's leading universities to posture and use history in a way that is deeply irresponsible. As, as Professor Lawrence Goldman says, you know, we're in danger of losing history if every view is equally valid with no reference to the evidence or the social mores of the time that you're examining. By the way, Halligan, I thought you were keeping your end up with your RH Tawnies and your Tobias Rustats. <laughs> it's not a fluke. Now onto our listener emails, a selection of the fantastic messages you send each week to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming got an absolutely bumper crop this week. Here's one that I found immensely interesting, Liam. Carol is a nurse practitioner. Carol says, I work in a surgery and I was doing some coding work last week. Every single procedure has a specific code to facilitate payment. I came across five codes for five COVID booster vaccines already on the system. So the NHS knows that these boosters will be given repeatedly in the future I just wish they'd tell the truth. I'm sick of it. When will they stop reporting daily stats? When will it stop being our responsibility to protect the NHS? We've lost very few at our surgery out of 16,000 patients. Mostly they were over 90 and in local nursing homes. We expected a slew of deaths, but nothing happened. And yet we were watching the TV terrorising us. It's all been very odd. This one's from Wayne. Dear Alison and Liam, regarding the current climate shenanigans, it's very strange how there seems to be so many similarities between the COVID crisis and the climate crisis. Both are based on complicated and debatable mathematical modelling rather than real-world facts. Both seem to have attracted their own merry bands of judgmental and virtue-signalling supporters, and both have used the media to turn up the fear, to tell us we're all going to die, unless we do exactly what the so-called experts and politicians tell us, as they happily jet around the world in their private planes. 
I want to draw attention to the issues this is currently causing for livestock farmers who are facing a barrage of negative media attention due to the current all-meat-is-bad propaganda. This has now reached levels where I believe it's severely impacting farmers' mental health. It worries me hugely for the future of livestock farming in the UK. Here are some stats for Velma. That's UK hey, that's me. The number of cattle in the UK has been pretty much constant since 1950. Who knew? At around 10 million. In contrast, the UK population has increased by 32%. The number of vehicles on our roads has increased by 850%. And commercial flights have gone from practically none to 38 million a year over the same time frame. Good stats. Mm. And yet, according to the media, the fact that we're facing an apparent global meltdown is all because of the cows and sheep grazing peacefully <laughs> on our hillsides, which they've been doing since time immemorial. Give me a break. We have the highest animal welfare standards in the world. Our cattle and sheep are reared mainly on grass-based systems, which actually soak up CO2 and could soak up more, with many figures stating that grazed grasslands can sequester more carbon than trees with correct management. It would be great if you could get a farming guest on your rocket of right thinking to delve further into some of these issues. Thanks so much for your great work and all the best to you both. Farmer Wayne. I think that's a fantastic email, Liam. We must definitely get, get a farmer on. He made some really good points. Two emails here on your friend, Alison, Amanda Pritchard. <laughs> Amanda Pritchard has a degree in modern history. She joined the management training scheme of the NHS and has only ever worked for the NHS. She has no idea what good looks like and has never worked in a true meritocracy. Time to get a seriously good CEO in place, ideally from the private sector, to shake this mess up. Tim, real name, A. Pearson. And John says, the damage is already done. I had dinner with a former colleague last night. She said, I hear the COVID numbers in England are up big time. I saw an interview with that new NHS lady. I reassured my friend that the NHS England COVID website was reporting the complete opposite. We chuckled and blamed the idiots at Sky News. And this is from James. I do love you, Alison. Long live planet normal. I noticed your co-pilot is getting a bit bossy recently. Ooh. That's another one from A. Pearson. <laughs> Look, the idea of our emails isn't for you to sort of, you know, unleash personal vendettas against your co-pilot. <laughs> Before you move on, we're going to ask the listeners to write in. Do you think co-pilot Halligan has got a bit oh. bossy? Our answers in an email. We'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. The jury's out, Halligan. The jury's out. On that bombshell, here's Pamela, another brilliant podcast. Don't worry about the fuel for your rocket, as well as... All your personal hot air. All of my Telegraph reader friends were incandescent with rage. We all had our own personal ready breck glow when we heard about the private jets and their occupants flying into Glasgow without having to fill in a single passenger locator form between them. Keep up the good work. And Peter says, thanks for providing my most enjoyable and thought-provoking podcast of the week. Here's more about the hypocrisy at COP26. For those world leaders staying at Glen Eagles, Jagger have provided 20 electric cars. Unfortunately, there's only one charging point, and that's for a Tesla, so it's incompatible. The government's had to ship up large oil-powered generators on Scania trucks, eight miles per gallon, <laughs> to power the electric cars. Thanks for continuing to be a voice for normality. And here's a couple on NHS matters. Dominic says... NHS chiefs need to stop obsessing with COVID and sort the ship out. Reform is dramatically needed. My wife was told she has to wait six months for a five-minute cervical screening test after being bombarded with letters and text messages highlighting the dangers of not getting a cervical smear test. The NHS is a complete waste of money. 
And finally, Mike says, I have just read your article regarding a fight back against wokery. Whilst reading it, I was enjoying a bottle of Marston's Old Empire IPA. No doubt I'm now doomed. Absolutely. Doomed. doomed. He's doomed. doomed. And that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week. Alison, it's you. Oh, so, so hard. I think from Carol, the nurse practitioner, giving us the scoop that we've got at least five more boosters <laughs> heading down the line from the NHS. Carol, if you'd like to write in and give us your full address than a planet normal mug what do you say was that sad rarer than hen's teeth rarer than rocking horse poo will be in the mail to you if you enjoy planet normal do leave us a rating and a review on apple Podcasts or wherever you listen it does really help other people to find us so that the planet normal family can grow and every thursday morning telegraph subscribers can talk to me on the telegraph website Find the article labelled Planet Normal. Leave a comment beneath it this week on the marvellous words of Professor Lawrence Goldman. And I will reply between 11am and 12 noon. And do keep emailing us, Planet Normal listeners, planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells, Isabel Bajard, Elliot Lampett, and our editor, Theodora Leloudis. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.